Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 19, The Great Depression. Last time, we talked about how the Adventist Church began to modernize, meaning how they began to professionalize as an organization, seeking efficiency in their operations like the great companies and nations around them. They modernized by offering new reading courses to train pastors and teachers and local church leaders, which ultimately led to the theological seminary, at least in spirit. But they also modernized by finally releasing a church manual and a statement of fundamental beliefs. This one actually stuck around. So these were all essential steps in creating the Adventist church that we all recognize today. In fact, it's, it's hard to conceive of the Adventist church without these things. Now, in this episode, we're going to begin on a depressing note. That is, the U.S. stock market fell 11% on October 24th, 1929. But it wasn't at all clear what that meant. Recessions naturally happened every few years, as they had like clockwork in 1920, 1923, and 1926. So why would a recession in 1929 be any different? The 1920s had been a boom decade, much like the 1990s, if you guys who are listening have lived through the 1990s, and so it was natural to expect it to slow down at some point. We all know the market can't keep going up, 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 up forever. Sure, stocks fell 11% that day, but bankers bailed everyone out by gobbling up more shares, thinking that they could restore confidence. So the market had rebounded by the end of the day, almost to where it had uh, dropped off. Now, everyone went home for the weekend, but then the new week started, and we had what we eventually called Black Monday and Black Tuesday. And before long, your stocks lost about a third of their value. But what did that mean? You see, a myth about the Great Depression, which shortly followed, is that it was directly caused by this market crash. It wasn't. By the next Easter, in fact, the market had regained most of its value. It was almost like any other recession. Almost. Throughout the 1920s, these little recessions tended to last on average about 15 months, and then it's back on your feet in this chaotic financial system of ups and downs. The Adventist Review, in fact, didn't acknowledge anything out of the ordinary in the final months of 1929. Except the next year, the banks failed. The market crash of 1929 certainly helped weaken these banks, but the banks had spent a decade building a bubble around themselves. Banks counted checks that were being processed as part of their cash reserves, for instance. So if I write a check for my mortgage from Bank A and I deposit it in Bank B, while that check is being processed, both banks are counting that money while, you know, as, as being part of their reserves. And remember that these banks are processing thousands of checks at a time, so the banks really didn't have an accurate count of how much cash they had on hand. Cash that belongs, of course, to the depositors. And if enough depositors should want their cash, the banks would quickly realize that they don't have as much cash as they have on paper, which is, of course, what ended up happening. People made a run on the banks, and the banks closed. So while America's financial system tottered on the edge of a cliff, Adventists, like everybody else, blithely made plans for the future. A month before the crash, William Spicy Spicer 
responded to anonymous rumors that the church was hoarding mission funds. Since the days of James White, suspicious Adventists had accused church leaders of having more money than they let on. It had become a matter of course to answer these accusations, just part of the job of being a leader. Keep the funds rolling in, Spicer told the church. We can trust the 11 great world divisions, he wrote. In December, two months after the crash, John Shaw, General Conference Treasurer, was revealing plans for the 1930 budget. If Shaw was concerned about anything, it was the mechanization of world powers who were developing weapons of destruction, Shaw tells us, quote, that terrify the imagination of man. We must expect war, Shaw was telling the church. His other concern, no less dramatic, was the parasite that was modernism. Quote, a church that is giving way to evolution and modernism cannot train and inspire men to become self-denying missionaries in the hard, dark places of earth. End quote. His solution was bold. The church would spend $5 million on missions in 1930. Now, the General Conference didn't have $5 million for missionaries, but in the face of modernism and war, the General Conference wasn't going to just sit around and wait and see. They were going to go forward. Shaw told the World Church, quote, the momentous year in our history is just upon us, end quote. That it was, my friend, that it was, just not in the way you would expect. When it finally dawned on church leaders that this was no routine recession, the first reaction was to put on a brave face. One union leader announced, quote, God is throwing out a challenge to his loyal people to see whether we, by sacrifice and increased devotion, will not demonstrate to angels and to men that we believe there is no crisis in him, end quote. Another said, quote, we are told that there is no failure in the work of God. I am sure it is a mistake for us to keep talking hard times and depression, end quote. Church members in Australia were reminded that, quote, the beginning of the Advent movement was born out of depression, end quote, speaking of 1844. Now, this policy of positive thinking could sometimes just be silly. Shaw told one group of church leaders that if you take the letters D-I-E, die, out of depression, you're left with the words, press on. <laughs> well, sometimes this positive thinking bordered on delusion, as with the writer who declared, quote, the stock market crash and all that has followed is the best thing that has happened to America since the travail of the World War, end quote. Now, that may be a bit too much enthusiasm for a situation that caused 40,000 people to commit suicide and one out of every eight people to be unemployed, all right? <laughs> Suicide was, in fact, so common that when one man jumped in front of a New York train, it only delayed the passengers for 10 minutes. So maybe we ought not to be a little bit too excited about the Great Depression. The General Conference pledged to tighten their belt and not get into debt. They told their employees not to drive their cars in order to save money. The review trimmed itself down from 32 pages to 24. Conferences were told to look into merging with each other to save money. The $5 million missionary fund was forgotten, but church leaders' optimism was invincible. Still, by 1932, the General Conference was drawing loans to keep afloat. Retired church workers were told to expect a 10% pay cut. A day of fasting and prayer was proclaimed as the crisis deepened. The General Conference session of 1934 was postponed two years in order to save money. The GC noticed that some churches failed to send their tithes and offerings up the food chain. Feeling the crunch, it seems clear, some churches were weathering the storm by keeping their tithes and offerings to themselves. 
desperate times, desperate measures. There was a bit of humor going around during all of this. W.W. Prescott remarked at how many Adventists at the GC seemed to be getting new cars. F.D. Nickel replied, I think the brethren are trying to break the Depression. I hope they don't break themselves financially. On a side note, Nickel saw a colleague learning how to drive one time and recommended that the man get some insurance. The man asked Nickel, oh, do you have insurance? No, Nickel said, I'm not the one here who needs it. So Nickel would go on to complain that his car only went 75 miles per hour and wished it went 100 miles per hour. Some of the humor was dark, as when church leaders rejoiced that mission offerings hadn't fallen as much as tithe had. Tithe had fallen about 60%, so I guess it was a cause for excitement that mission offerings only fell by a third. Instead of raising $5 million from mission work, the church managed to raise $2.7 million in 1933. This had a real effect, of course, on hundreds of Adventists who were missionaries. The church had sent, on average, about 178 missionaries per year in the final years of the 1920s. But during the Depression, that number fell to about 104 per year. When all was said and done, C.H. Watson, the president of the General Conference during these years, reported that the church basically lost an entire year's worth of income during the Depression. It was probably worse than that. At least it felt worse than that for many of the Adventists who were employed on the front lines and local contexts. Numerous Adventist teachers, for instance, had to take several pay cuts. The stock market itself didn't climb up to its 1929 peak until the 1950s. Charitable giving was one of the last things to return to normal, and when it did, 10 years after the crash, many of the wealthiest donors understandably moved from supporting churches towards supporting social welfare causes. And as the New Deal revved up, people saw even less of a need to give to the churches. I don't need the church to take care of the poor. That's what the government is for, and I already pay taxes. You know, that kind of attitude. Adventists didn't have to look far to know why all of this misfortune had fallen upon the world. The decadence of the 1920s with its jazz music and motion pictures and the evolution and women with their bobbed hair were all seen as symptoms of the influence of modernism upon America. It was a delicious story to tell. All of America's problems stem from a failure to keep the old faith. Arthur Maxwell, writing under a picture of Hitler and Mussolini in a magazine, explained how the roaring 1920s led to the depressed 1930s. Quote, the moral recession led to the stock market crash and depression. End quote. It wasn't all that bad, however. 35,000 people were baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1931, the most ever. That was basically the entire membership of the World Church when Ellen White went to Australia in 1891. They baptized that many people in one year. 1931 was also the year that Arthur Maxwell headed down to Geneva to speak before the League of Nations, the precursor of the United Nations. The League had seen the importance, given all the modernization going on, of making sure the world was using the same calendar. Now, the Gregorian calendar was messy, and one of the major proposals To reform it meant to skip one day in each year, meaning that in some years the Sabbath might be skipped and the world goes from Friday to Sunday. Maxwell and the Adventists joined with Jewish leaders from Europe and America to make sure the League respected the Sabbath and didn't tamper with the week. Maxwell, always living in a novel of his own writing, described the affair as a battle. In the section he called Battle's Eve, he complained that two rabbis kept asking how old he was. With his pretentious peacocking prose, Maxwell wondered, quote, do we look so young? 
We must surely grow a beard by tomorrow, for everyone who is coming seems patriarchal except ourselves. And yet, perhaps beards cannot be altogether an advantage. We remember David and are comforted. End quote. Wait, are you really appealing to the Bible to reassure yourself for not being able to grow a beard? In any case, Maxwell made a cogent case at times for why this change would be a supreme nuisance to most of the religious people in the world. He couldn't resist ending with a flourish, however, when he told the committee, quote, In the spirit with which David addressed Goliath, we are constrained to say to the blank day reformers, Thou hast come out against us with many dollars and big business and much propaganda, but we come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts whom thou wouldst defy, end quote. Okay. Now, it was a serious issue, though perhaps not an existential threat to Sabbath keepers, as some believed. Adventists have had to deal with these kind of calendar changes since then. And while they are controversial and sometimes difficult to solve, we're still around. Maxwell noted also how anti-Semitism motivated some who wanted a calendar change. But in any event, the issue was tabled for a while. The early 1930s were not just financially difficult, they were culturally difficult for Adventists as well. As I've mentioned before, a reactionary mood was taking over places in the church, such as that uh, which the more moderate Leroy Froome complained, uh, that any Adventist who dared to think would be ostracized, no matter how loyal they were to the church. Willie White was also frustrated with the more fundamentalist general conference leaders for their black and white imperialistic leadership style, and he tried hard to get the general conference president to meet it head on. Now, W.W. Prescott, now teaching at what would become Andrews University, knew exactly how it felt to be whispered about in the church, and by 1933, he was really tired of it. Prescott apparently told William Branson, a future general conference president, and one of the men Willie was frustrated with, that he had been waiting a long time for someone to adequately respond to Ballinger and Fletcher two prominent Adventists who had turned against the church. Now, this alarmed Branson, but it probably also personally offended Branson, as Branson had just published a book refuting D.M. Canwright, another ex-Adventist who had turned against the church. Did this mean that Prescott was in sympathy with these heretics? Was Prescott saying that Branson didn't do a good job refuting Canwright? Now, Prescott did think that, but it's not clear that Branson knew what Prescott thought. Branson chose to interpret it as negatively as possible and began plotting to get Prescott and the president of Andrews, Prescott's friend, removed. In early 1934, Branson wrote a letter to Prescott asking him to withdraw from his teaching position because his views were, quote, not in full harmony with certain vital points, especially the doctrine of the sanctuary, end quote. Now, Prescott was furious, just furious. They told him to quit. And then they told him just to come to General Conference headquarters if he wanted to talk about it? Prescott shot back, is a man sentenced before the trial? What precisely are you accusing me of? Lay out your charges in writing. It was cowardly to just say, you're not in harmony with our belief, so please quit. To quote Prescott, quote, It is no light thing to tell a worker who has held a good record for 50 years that he is unfitted to go on because he does not believe certain vital points of our message, end quote. Branson and the others at the GC refused to put their charges on paper, and Prescott eventually went to D.C. to meet them. There they told him that they were just trying to save God's church and that it wasn't right for a teacher to believe different things than the church believed, even if he didn't actually teach them in the classroom. Wait, so we're being judged now not just on what we teach, but on what we may think? 
Hello, someone called the thought police. Now, Prescott survived the meeting, and Branson's partner in crime at the GC realized how badly they had handled this situation. But Branson himself did not back down. He was going to purify Andrews of wrong think. His point made, Prescott tendered his resignation to the school board, but the board was shocked and angry at how Branson had tried to strong-arm the school into firing both their president and one of their star professors. It was so hard to get professors these days, precisely because of how they were treated by people like Branson. They voted as a school board and said, quote, it would mean everything, end quote, if Prescott had stayed at the school. And eventually Branson backed down, but the damage had been done, and it wouldn't be the last time someone came after Prescott on suspicion of heresy. But while this drama was unfolding, word reached Arthur G. Daniels in California that Prescott might be joining with Ballinger and Fletcher in leaving the church. Ah, that old Adventist grapevine at work. Now, Daniels and Prescott, you may remember, had long been comrades, and Daniels knew the constant abuse that Prescott had taken over the past few decades. But there was a part of Daniels that believed the rumors, and, and that, to me, is the interesting part. Even if he didn't agree with Prescott's persecutors, which Daniels very much did not, the man who had worked so closely along Prescott for 40 years had his own doubts about the man. In getting to the bottom of this, Daniels was no dupe. He wasn't going to have a secretary type up a letter to Prescott. That's how word gets out. Rather, Daniels picked up a pen and did it himself. This is how you stop the Avenist grapevine. Daniels' views were diametrically opposed to Branson's. Branson said you can't believe differently even if you never say a word of it ever. In other words, you just can't, you can't even think differently. Daniels told Prescott, basically... Just keep your heresy to yourself, if you have any, and teach whatever truth you can. Quote, I cannot follow Conradi and Fletcher at all. Canwright and Ballinger are utterly impossible. They would drive me into cold, hard infidelity if I were to think in their direction. End quote. Podcasters note, infidelity back then meant atheism, not cheating on your wife. Daniels reminded Prescott that, quote, your enemies and my enemies have been looking for this. They have been whispering it, end quote. And if that's true, Daniels said, and you want to make an open break with the church, quote, I hoped I might be carried to the cemetery before you start, end quote. In other words, the idea of Prescott breaking with the church broke Daniels' heart. Now, Daniels had nothing to worry about, it turns out. Prescott thanked Daniels for his concern and said that such rumors directed at him were nothing new. Prescott seemed to think of himself, with good reason, as everyone's favorite target. For instance, he wasn't the first or the only one teaching this daily thing in the early 1900s, but he was the one everyone seemed to go after. Nevertheless, he admitted, quote, There are some interpretations of the scriptures which our leaders advocate with which I cannot agree, end quote. Prescott was frustrated because there was no safe place in the church where he could discuss his questions. Our leaders, he wrote to Daniels, quote, either do not care for such a study or they are afraid of it. And so we drift along with the emphasis being placed upon the mechanics of our work rather than upon the spiritual experience needed to understand and to give this message, end quote. Like Daniels, Prescott said, quote, after nearly 50 years of my life given to this work, I am free to say that I am sadly disappointed, but I see no hope in turning to those who are fighting us, end quote. Prescott reassured Daniels that even though he could not accept the spiritual leadership of men like Branson, he would stay the course. Quote, we must have a new order of things in this movement, not outside of it. End quote. 
Well, was Prescott a private heretic? Well, he was certainly unguarded about who he trusted. It really depends otherwise how you define heretic. Leroy Froome, one of Prescott's allies, nevertheless found problems in Prescott's book, The Spade and the Bible. Froome wrote, quote, You cast doubt upon our generally accepted method of calculating the number of the beast, Vicarius Filii Dei, 666, end quote. To explain briefly, Avenus had long said that this title of the papacy, supposedly found in one of the pope's mitres or crowns or something, adds up in Latin to 666. Now, Prescott cast doubt on that title as evidence of the papacy being the beast. In fact, Prescott didn't teach that the papacy was the beast at all in that book. What's more, Prescott wanted Adventist evangelists to get it right that Catholics do claim that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Stop saying Mary is the mediator. Granted, this book was published by a non-Adventist company, but given how widely the book was circulated among Adventists, this worried Froome. And not just Froome either. Letters were coming in from all over, complaining of those few pages in Prescott's book. Now, Prescott's concerns had the potential of being explosive, especially if he gave up on the idea that the papacy was not the beast in Revelation chapter 13. That interpretation was the basis for a number of ideas in Adventism. But it's also true that because so much of Adventist belief and doctrine and practice were so interwoven, even even the little tiny beliefs, uh, because they supported larger conclusions, were seen as essential. Many Adventists today, for instance, believe that the papacy is the beast, but they no longer use or need vicarious filii dei to prove it. In the theological Jenga that Adventism had constructed, it wasn't always clear to men like Froome that you could remove a few pieces without the whole thing collapsing. Well, if we began this episode on a depressing note, we're going to end it on a depressing note, too. You're welcome. In late 1934, Daniels felt the walls were closing in. Not just the general conference, but local conferences were increasingly hiring reactionary, fundamentalist Adventists who were turning the church down the path of Washburn and Holmes. Daniels wrote Prescott, quote, I am a sadly disappointed man at 75 years of age. I have never dreamed in the fervor of my younger days, the first joyful years of my ministry, that I would view men, institutions, and organizations as I have for a dozen years. I confess I am not much exercised about certain fine points of doctrinal teaching, but I am deeply exercised about the spiritual condition of our denomination, end quote. Like Prescott, Daniels was disillusioned with what the church was becoming, the, the spirit and tone of the church. Like Prescott, Daniels decided to stay the course. Neither man was going to jump out of the airplane in the final years of his life. So take that, Conradi. Daniel spent his final years on two books, The Abiding Gift of Prophecy and Christ Our Righteousness. The latter was a compilation of Ellen White's statements on, well, the righteousness of Christ in the hopes of keeping the 1888 fire alive. I say alive because, well, by the 1930s, most Seventh-day Adventists weren't around in 1888. Just as the early Jewish Christian church transitioned into a Gentile faith that lost and forgot most of its Jewish roots, so the Adventist church was growing so large and so diverse that it was forgetting its 19th century past. The abiding gift of prophecy was Daniels' way of showing how the gift of prophecy had been used since the beginning. Now, controversially, he said that uh, people like Luther and Zwingli were what we could consider prophets in a broader sense. Daniels knew that his life was ending and openly worried 
that what he called the ultra-conservatives in the GC would destroy his book. Well, they tried, and the idea that even prophets in a broad sense existed through the Middle Ages was like nails on a chalkboard to these ultra-conservatives, these fundamentalists. The, the story had always been in Adventism that the early church was great. It was pure, it was wonderful, and then these popes came and they ruined everything, and then Adventists came and restored the truth. Well, Daniel's trying to find some good in the Middle Ages was, was a dangerous proposition. It was also, in the opinion of the editor of the Review, F.M. Wilcox, it also diluted the role of Ellen White, right? Because is she just one of a, of, of a long string of prophets? Is she on the caliber of Luther, or is she in some way special? Well, the book seemed doomed. Froome had staked a lot on seeing his old mentor's magnum opus published, but he could see in his own words that only divine intervention would allow this book to see the light of day. Meanwhile, in 1935, doctors told Daniels that his condition was terminal. He didn't have long to live. Now, Daniels began putting his affairs in order. Sadly, the new car he had just ordered would have to be sold when it arrived. He earnestly prayed for healing, hoping God might grant him a few more years, and he told the church to pray for that as well. Daniels prepared a final word to the ministers of the Adventist church, his great passion in the latter years of his life. Seeing the gathering clouds of war and difficulty gathering over the world, Daniels told the ministers, quote, God is counting on you to be both faithful and true. End quote. Froome, Willie White, and Arthur White, Willie's son, were among those gathered around Daniels in his final days. He reminisced with them all. He apologized for not supporting Willie more, and he again reminisced about the old struggles with Kellogg, which had so scarred his soul. And he remembered Ellen White fondly. On March 22, 1935, Daniels slipped into a coma and died a few hours later. He had never retired. He died as he had lived, on the job. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign-up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign-up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>